Good morning. I am Brian. I'm the worship and arts director here. Uh, it is great to be with you in a role that suddenly became kind of unfamiliar for me. I um, was when I was making when I was writing this out. I was looking through my manuscripts and stuff from past sermons and realized the last time I preached was January. So it's been a long time uh, since I've been up here doing this. I dusted off my preaching sweater and everything, so <laughs> we're good to go. Um, we have spent the past several weeks in our As We Go series exploring different elements of what we encounter in the journey that is our life's walk following Christ. Uh, we began by looking at what it takes to start a journey, specifically the questions that we ask ourselves at the beginning. Who am I? Where have I come from? And where am I going? And they're questions we need to keep returning to along the way. Uh, Rich helped us look at the reality that from the very beginning of creation, God has intended for us to be in relationship not only with God, but with creation and with each other as well. Uh, God said it is not good for a person to be alone. And so we have traveling companions with each other. We journey together. Rich and Martha looked at the reality that when on our journey, that no plan survives the road. Uh, our best plans cannot take into account everything that could potentially happen, and so we encounter all sorts of stuff on the road. Uh, some of those are unexpected things and create great opportunities for us to move beyond where we've ever been before into participating with God in some incredible things. Uh, and some of those things are unwanted and unwelcome. The things that, as Martha said, uh, blindside you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Uh, all these moments are part of a tapestry or a quilt that God is weaving together, light pieces, dark pieces, small, big, structured, identifiable, shaped pieces, and blobby, hard-to-define pieces. A couple of weeks ago, Greg led us through the sacred ground of being lost. And again, the series got very personal. Uh, we all know what it is like to feel without direction, alone, and not knowing where to go. It's uncomfortable and it can be scary. Uh, but Greg defined being lost as bigger than that. Uh, he described it as not being true to who we are and who we're becoming. Uh, and this is a far deeper and more powerful understanding of this reality. Being lost is not just a lack of direction. It's about who we are and who we're becoming. And if we're being the person the God of all creation designed us to be. Greg helped us to see that understanding and processing our lostness can be so transformative in how it moves us to be found by the God of the universe who is constantly at work redeeming everything as we know it, making all things new. Last week, Rich brought us into a conversation on faithful presence. He invited us to be attentive to what is going on around us in this moment, in this place. Uh, and that's something we'll come back to a bit later today, um, and we'll get there. Yeah. So, when we crafted this series, we had all these little, like, taglines to go with them. Uh, and the one for this week is, are we there yet? Uh, and I don't really know how to explain what exactly it is that we're talking about, except to say that we're talking about tension. The tension between hoping and expecting God to do something to make things better, and the reality that we are in this world, in this life, that's often hard and heartbreaking and glorious and beautiful all at once. So before we get too much farther into this, though, let's pray. Good, gracious, almighty, present, loving God. 
Awaken us to you. Attune us to your movement, your presence, here and now. May we hear you and see you more clearly. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, how many of us have been on some sort of road trip, or some sort of long flight, or something like that? Um, it feels like this is like an iconic life experience, right? Like a, a rite of passage in life to go on a long trip somewhere. It's something most of us can probably relate to. And uh, I've taken several long trips myself, and I love it. I love the passing landscape seeing how the world changes as we move through it. I love encountering things that are outside what I'd see in my everyday life. But it's not always a ton of fun, right? It gets old. It gets tiring. Sitting in a seat for so long, staring at the road ahead, I may never, ever, 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 ever turn again. Uh, Or transferring through airports and waiting for your next flight to take off. Uh, My wife Amy and I took a trip to New Zealand several years ago, and we left from Boston and flew through San Francisco. And we had a layover in San Francisco for five hours. We took a six-hour flight from Boston to San Francisco, and then I had to wait five hours for our next flight to New Zealand, which itself was a 12-hour flight. Uh, We rode that little airport tram thing, light rail thing, around San Francisco airport so many times. Uh, From end to end, like, all day. Uh, And it's funny to think about now, but at the moment, at the time, what we could think about was, like, are you kidding me? Are we, when will we get there? How much longer are we going to have to wait? When does our plane leave so we can get off of it and be in the place that we set out to be? Are we there yet? Uh, I have a two-year-old, so thankfully I'm not quite to this point yet, but that might be a common refrain for many of you that have children that are old enough to express their boredom, or maybe you say it yourself, too. Um, are we there yet? How much longer do we have to wait? Does this sound familiar? Not just the actual image of kids or grown-ups asking, are we there yet, on a trip, but the weariness of our own journey. The feeling of being worn out with our day-to-day lives. The feeling that all is not well in our world. That is something we can all relate to. Like sitting in a cramped airplane for six hours. It gets old really quick. There are so many instances in the Bible of people waiting and longing and hoping for rescue, waiting for God to move. There's the story of the Exodus, where the people waited on God and asked God to rescue them from Egypt, and then to get them out of the desert and into the promised land after that. There are a whole pile of prophets in the latter half of the Old Testament that are waiting on the Messiah, asking for God to come into this world and rescue them from oppression. And the New Testament ends with the hopeful expectation that God will return in the person of Jesus Christ and make all things right. The text we're going to look at today is out of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Quick backstory: Israel and Judah, the two parallel kingdoms of the Hebrew people, have been conquered, and the people have been hauled off to Babylon in exile. They're far from home. Jerusalem has been sacked. The temple is gone. God's house has fallen, and his people have been captured. It is a bad time. Uh, But the Hebrew people are holding on to this hope that God will come and rescue them and bring them back home. So this is where our text picks up. It's a bit long, but there's something lovely about reading large chunks of scripture in community together. Um, So our text is Jeremiah 28, 1 through 29, 14. 
If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. So here we go. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of King Zedekiah of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place King Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill your words that you have prophesied and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. But listen now to this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes true, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. When the prophet Hananiah took the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it, And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, This is how I will break the yoke of the king Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. At this, the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go tell Hananiah, Thus says the Lord, You have broken wooden bars only to forge iron bars in place of them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I've put an iron yoke on the neck of all these nations so that they may serve King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and they, may, they shall indeed serve him. I have even given him the wild animals. And the prophet Jeremiah said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I'm going to send you off the face of the earth. Within this year you will be dead, because you have spoken rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the mother, queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, son of Shaphat, Shaphan and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. 
I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are complete will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you your welfare, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you future with a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. When you search for me, you'll find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. We talk about life as a journey, as a process of moving from somewhere to somewhere else. We also use this journey language to talk about what it is to follow Jesus, a process of becoming more and more who we were created to be. We've used these images of road trips, uh, and several times we've seen clips of Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman's motorcycle trip around the world, which is awesome, and you should all go watch it, both uh, the long way around and long way down when they go through Africa. It's two rules. Go watch them. They're on Netflix. Uh, We've seen how glorious these trips can be and how difficult they can be. And as much as little kids sitting in the back of a car asking, are we there yet, is a funny image, or it may make some of you cringe, uh, the reality is that in this case, in our journeys, Are we there yet? feels a lot more like the last hour of a really long flight. It's something we say when things are not going well for us. When we are worn out. When we are tired. When we're hurting. When we feel out of sync with ourselves and our world around us. Or it's bigger. It's something we say when we look at the political turmoil in our country. Or the racism, classism, sexism, and general social dysfunction that exists not just in this world or in this country, but in our city. It's something we say when we see the complete upheaval of whole people groups because of horrific violence. Are we there yet is the voice of lament. It's the voice of grief, of longing for things to be made whole. It's the hope that we can get where we're going, and preferably soon. The hope that maybe, just maybe, God can straighten up some of this mess. And it's a legitimate request. Please, dear God, do something. It's even some of the last words in our Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. I remember asking my parents questions similar to the, like, the are we there yet question on long car trips and getting an answer that was something like this. We'll get there when we get there. Which to me sounded like, we can't make it come any faster, so just be quiet and hang in there until we get there. You'll get out of the car eventually, so stop complaining about it. And I often wonder if this is how we treat some of the verses of the Bible, like Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that we just read a minute ago. God has a plan for you. God's ways are higher than our ways. God works all things for good, so stop complaining. It often feels like that to me that when those verses are thrown out. Uh, I don't know about you, but my experience being the one offering those words um, is that I do it because I don't know what else to say, and I'm so uncomfortable with someone else's pain and longing that I just have to fill that space with something. Uh, And my experience is when receiving those words is that they often feel flippant and dismissive. If you're with us during Lent last year, we talked about lamentations and the place of lament in the Christian life. It's the cry, the demand that God move that God intervene and do something to better our situation. It is the voice of so much of the Bible, especially during the time of the Babylonian exile, which is when the uh, text we just read is set. The Hebrew people were in exile. They were undone. They were far from home. 
and even though we don't see it in this specific text, that they lamented. It's the responses of Hananiah and Jeremiah, though, that I'm more interested in than the actual voice of the lament. It's because I hear a different answer in here than basically God's will get there when we get there. So Hananiah shows up to these grieving, lamenting people, these people who have been stripped of their homes and have had their whole world destroyed. He shows up to them and says, don't worry, God's going to overturn Babylon and free us soon. Just hang in there because it's coming. And he uses the symbol of the broken yoke to demonstrate it. But his point is that they should just hang in there because God's going to do something spectacular for them and soon. The ride will be over. They are almost there. Jeremiah feels pretty unsettled by this. And God tells him to inform Hananiah that no, that's not true. Uh, Jeremiah basically calls Hananiah a liar and tells him he isn't a prophet. Well, he doesn't basically tell him that. He does. He says, you're a liar. Um, He says that Hananiah is feeding the people lies and that he'll be dead soon, which he is. Uh, But it's Jeremiah's prophetic word to the people. That's what I'd really like to focus on. So let's read that again so it's fresh in our minds. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, said the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's seventy years are complete will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans for you, says I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not to harm you to give you future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. We often hear that one particular verse 11 used to talk about like, oh, God has a plan for you, a plan for me, and it's good. But if you look at this larger passage, it's a bit more fleshed out of a picture. These people are saying, we've been taken from our homes. Our cities have been destroyed and the temple is gone. Our world has fallen apart. Please, God, when will you come make this right? In essence, this is a very emotional, very painful, are we there yet? But God doesn't say that they'll be there soon. In fact, that idea is wholly rejected. Instead, God says what? God says, settle down. Build houses, make family, grow gardens, and pray for the welfare of the city. And this word welfare uh, is this word shalom, which we've talked about a lot of times in the past, but again, it means peace, goodness, everything as it was meant to be. Settle down, build houses, build homes, have family, grow gardens, pray for the peace of the city. Pray for the shalom of the city, because if they have shalom, then you'll have shalom. And lastly, God says, seek me, look for me, because when you look for me, you'll find me. God says, this is where you are. This is where you are, and it is okay. Because God is present in this. Working to bring shalom and inviting them to join in.
This is what verse 11 is saying. It's not saying that God has a future plan, so just hunker down and wait it out. Yes, God's going to free them from exile and send them home. But if you think about it, if you remember, Jeremiah says they'll be in exile for 70 years, which means that almost all the people that he's talking to will be dead before them. None of them get to go home. But rather it's God saying, I'm here. I'm working to bring about shalom in this place now. Come join me. That's what we're called to do in this world. Bring shalom. Join in and help bring about shalom. We're not asked to hunker down and wait God out, but rather we're invited to be present in this world, to build home, to have family, to grow gardens, to pray and work for shalom, and to look for God in this world around us. This is exactly along the lines of what Rich was talking about last week on Faithful Presence. We're called to remain in this place, to be faithfully involved in this world, to bring about shalom. And it is hard. It's hard to remain present when all we want is to be at the destination. It's really hard to settle down and build home and make family. And when I say family, I don't just mean get married and have kids. I mean make family in the largest sense you can imagine. Make family in gardens, and when all we want is for God to step down and do something spectacular. I grew up in New England and have, had never been west of, like, Pennsylvania um, until I was given the opportunity to go work on a tour for a month with some of my favorite bands. Uh, I quit my job, packed a bag, hopped in my car, and drove halfway across the country bef- to see a friend before I jumped on this tour. Uh, and it was my first time being that far away from home for that long of a time. I was by myself with no one I knew in a place that was totally unfamiliar, doing something I had dreamed about but never really actually thought through. Um, <laughs> and as cool as it was to be on tour, what nobody tells you about is that you spend, like, a stupid amount of time in the car. Uh, like, a lot. We'd spend a good 12 to 14 hours of every day driving, sometimes longer. Um, there were points when I got really homesick and just wanted to go see my friend and get my car and go home. And there were times when I couldn't stand the people that were in the van with me. But this trip was profoundly formative for me, so much so that, like, I can safely say I wouldn't be in Seattle if I didn't do this. As much as there were times as I wanted to go home so badly, one of the strongest memories I have of this tour, though, is when I would be sitting in the back of the van with my headphones in, listening to, like, glorious soundscape uh, music. Like, um, if you picture Iceland and what that sounds like, that's what I was listening to. (laughs) while looking out the window at the countryside going by, watching the, ro- the plains turn into the Rocky Mountains, driving through Idaho and Oregon and into the northwest for the first time, and then down the west coast into the southwest deserts. And I let myself sit in the tension of feeling homesickness while allowing the gloriousness of that present moment to wash over me, to fill my eyes and fill my ears to the point where I'd find myself crying a bit at how magnificent it was and how I wanted to be home at the same time. This is what we're asked to do. It's what God asked the people to do in Jeremiah. God says, look, I know you're tired. I know you're weary, and all you want is for me to do something. So here's what I'm going to do. Be here. God invites us to be present, to hold all of our longing and our weariness, and to let it exist. And at the same time, God invites us to be present where we are, to look for God in this world around us, Because when we seek shalom, when we seek wholeness and peace, when we look for God, we will find God everywhere working for goodness and wholeness and peace. 
It takes work to do this. It takes practice. It takes a conscious effort on our part to open our eyes and see. That's our hope for you all every week, that when we do this, when you leave those doors, you do so even slightly more tuned to the presence of God in this world. We build things into our weekly worship to help us learn to see God better. We sing because it helps locate us in God's story through the songs that we sing. We take communion because our bodies matter. And our bodies are one of the primary ways that we exist in this world. Using our bodies to experience grace like we do in communion helps us become more aware of how we physically exist in this world and how the goodness of God permeates everything. We pray for each other because in doing so, we get out of ourselves and actually see one another. We see another person complete with the mark and image of God that they bear. Praying together is seeking shalom. It's seeking wholeness and peace and goodness for each other, calling each other to see where God is present and moving. But all of that is to get us out into our day-to-day lives, to see God in our workplaces, in our coworkers, in our people that we encounter at our coffee shops and our supermarkets that we frequent. This call to build home, to settle down and make family, to build gardens and pray for shalom and to look for God, this is what we're called to. In the midst of our longing for a home, in the midst of our weariness, we are called to be where we are. We're called to look for God in everything. We're called to work for shalom. To call forth life and goodness and wholeness in everyone and everything around us. And to do away with the things that are not shalom-making. Because if shalom comes to our city and our world, we'll have it too. So have your are we there yet? Let them exist. Let, them, let yourself ache for home. Let yourself long for redemption and rescue and rest. And then settle down and build home and make family and grow gardens. And pray, for work, pray and work for shalom because when there's shalom around us, we will have it. And look for God because God is there. If you look for God, you will find God. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward, and as they do, uh, you have the connection cards that Greg mentioned earlier in your bulletins, uh, and I have some questions for you to ponder and and write down on those cards. First question is, what do you long for? What is your are we there yet? What What is the home that you ache for? Number two, what does it look like for you to build home and pray for shalom where you are? What does it look like for you to be faithfully present where you are and attuned to where God is and what God is doing. Take a second to write down your thoughts and then the worship team will close us out with a song. Uh, and let's pray. <clears throat>